creating, forming a syndicate. The name of the syndicate is Just Us, which is essentially a collective of brothers who are looking to ensure change, equity, justice, and ownership within our communities through education and empowerment, economic empowerment. Uh, without further ado, I just wanted to make the time to introduce you to the team over here as well as introduce the team to your work. So being that we decided to focus on education, I wanted to make sure to get you on because our story, our, um, our connection comes through the world of education, working at the same school, working in the same district. And then from there, we just built naturally into what we're doing today, which you'll get into your work with the nonprofit, the word on the move. We'll talk a little bit about your uh -huh. book, right? White Shade. And we'll just have a dialogue, a conversation. So just to formally introduce everyone to one another, Dr. Michelle Shelton, uh, Quentin is on the line, Q. Michelle, we thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. We appreciate you. I appreciate you. Thank you. Got Dries on the line here. Good afternoon. Thanks for coming. Um, interested in whatever you, I mean, we've seen your book, so we're kind of interested to dive into a couple of things. So I'm, I'm ready to get straight to it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Kent. How you doing? I'm, I'm super, super interested to hear your, uh, your take on education and what's going on right now and the world of education and more so the future of education, but not just uh, education in and of itself, but also for the future of education and the way in which it relates to not just African-Americans, but predominantly African-American women, because there are a lot of African-American women who operate in that space. And I would love to see a lot more African-American women own equity within that space and not just be, you know, I'm a teacher and I work for this, or I work for that. So I, I really want to dive into your, your, your intellect on that aspect. I love that. I'm, I'm excited about just your, um, your interest in that because I actually prepared something. So Aquas, I'm hoping I can slide that in and I think um, it'll, it'll align with what you're saying, Kent. And then we have Tafik and Port Marty on the line. Hey guys, where are your faces, by the way? I'm sorry. I'm uh, doing a lot of things over here. I didn't want to, like, have no feedback coming over here. How you doing? I appreciate your time. This is Tafik, by the way. Yes. Hi, Tafik. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. And poor Marty, the mastermind. He's in the lab, in the lab probably cooking something up right now. <laughs> hey, hey, how you doing? I'm just, uh, there's a lot of things going on this morning. So. I hear you. Yeah, but it's great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. I'm going to turn my phone off now. So, okay. I just needed to turn it on to talk, to text you. Got it. Yes. So if you want, we could hop right into what you want to share, right? And then just weave the conversation around, around that. So just share with us what's on your mind right now. What are you working on? Uh, if you want to get into your story, just to open things up. 
Yeah, so um, I guess I can introduce myself just by my background. So, um, you know, years back, I, of course, was an English major in undergrad, which is kind of why the book came about later on, because um, I've always just been a writer since I, I can remember. Since I was a, a little girl, I remember writing poetry that was probably a little bit too... Uh, too um, profound for my age, I think. Um, it's a little in-depth to just our culture as Black people. Just just being a Black girl, I, um, I kind of understood uh, the disparities then, and I, I was articulating that, like, I, I think even as, as young as, like, second grade. Um, and so I, I love writing. I was an English writing major, but I ended up um, also including secondary ed in that because I I understood that I wanted to have an impact on Black people. And I, just like you guys are saying right now that your impact is likely gonna be in the educational system. And, um, and so that was kind of the way I decided I was gonna do it. And so coming in, I started out not going right into the classroom, but actually as a power professional in Plainfield, which was a great experience for me because it helped me to really get a sense of my craft and really seeing teaching as a, a true art form. It, it requires more than just your ability to teach a content, but your ability to connect with young people, especially young people in underserved communities, especially young people that have maybe behavioral issues or, um, or academic concerns. So I actually started off in a, a grade three to five inclusion classroom with all boys. And so it was really a nice dynamic myself and a very seasoned black woman, strong black woman uh, teacher, we work very, very um, collaboratively there. And so from that point, I, I worked in all different um, capacities. I taught ninth through 12th grade in, um, in a parochial school in Newark. And um, so I, ta I taught English that helped me to really hone in my content uh, skills, being able to write the curriculum for all four grade levels. And um, that I think was in, I think that was necessary because I didn't have a lot of behavioral concerns at that point. Um, but then moving into Trenton, where I spent most of my career, I, I taught there for seven years, um, and I started um, in a, as a sixth and seventh grade language arts teacher. I love that experience because it allowed for me to take my experience as a paraprofessional, learning behavior management, um, having a warmth quality to your instruction. I was able to infuse that with the content that I was really um, honed in on when I was uh, in the parochial school. The reason I say that is because when you're in um, Trenton and you're teaching sixth and seventh grade, you're gonna deal with um, concerns involving adolescent behaviors and things like that. So I was able to bring those two um, worlds together and really have an impact on my kids at that time. And then most of my time in Trenton from that point on, that first year, I ended up as an alternative high school teacher. I taught um, 10th grade, 11th grade English. I taught an integrated literacy class because our students were not proficient in certain areas content-wise, especially in language arts. My principal asked me to teach that class. I had my students go from about 30% proficiency to almost 70% proficiency once they took my course on the, at that time, the HESPA. And after my time there, seven years in Trenton, six years at the Alternative High School, I ended up deciding it was time for me to move into a leadership position. And I started 
as an assistant principal in Jersey City Public Schools. And I served there uh, at, at a PK to eight school where I put together behavioral management programs for our students. I, I ensured that the lunch program was structured in such a way where behaviors were managed, students had things to do, staff knew what their responsibilities were, things went really well. I also um, was responsible for mentoring the novice teachers coming in to ensure that they gained their certification, standard certification. Um, I paired them with seasoned teachers and so on and so forth and um, really allow for them to shine both sides, novice teachers as well as the seasoned teachers and, in the classroom. And um, I love that experience. Um, I also worked with a crisis intervention teacher, a, a guidance counselors for those grade levels to really have all hands on deck for our, our young people and making sure the parents were very much involved. So from there, I actually became a um, vice principal within New Brunswick Public Schools. Actually, that's where I met Aquaeus after a couple years of me serving in that capacity at the K-5 to school. In that capacity, you know, um, I was in, in charge of, uh, you know, I, I'll, I guess I'll speak more to my high school experience there. When I was in a high school role, I, um, I was the testing coordinator there. I oversaw testing for the, the school of 2,100 students, we ensured that 1,600 students that had to take test tested. A lot of that work I had to do by myself, <laughs> but I was able to ensure that 90% of our 1,600 students tested um, in, uh, in grades uh, 9 to 11 on uh, the NJSLA. I did the NJSLA science by myself and ensure that again 90% of our, our students tested in there. Um, it, was, it was a great experience. I had I could I could go on and on. I'm not going to just because I don't want to um, just be talking. But I will say that um, after leaving New Brunswick Public Schools, I was able to really reflect on my experience as an educator. I also was able to put together my book that Aquaeus just showed you a moment ago. Um, because in my experience as a black woman, especially as a leader, didn't see it as much when I was in the classroom, didn't really see it at all when I was in a classroom, but becoming a leader in um, especially, I won't even say especially New Brunswick, I will just say just being a leader, a black leader, a black woman leader, you are challenged with a lot of psychological nuances of oppression that um, manifests in very different ways from very different stakeholders. And it is up to you to have the, the, the girth and the mindset to overcome it and be empowered by it. So I just wanted to give you that before I get into whatever questions you have. And I do have a presentation for you guys too. So I, I thought what you said is a great segue to a few points that we spoke on prior to you coming in. I know Ken mentioned specifically about, uh, you know, his audience, his platform. He's a DJ. He talks a lot about financial empowerment. He's, he's huge on economics. And he said a lot of his audience, uh, black, black woman, deal with that. You know, deal with how to go about navigating different spaces, right? So, Kent, uh, get get into some of what we were talking yeah, about. I was about to, because you just dropped so much that now I got questions on top of my, my questions have questions now. <laughs> because I was like, 
I didn't I didn't know that you had had such a a, a long entangled uh, let me not say entangled a long history with the education system where you had been from so many different levels of you know uh, uh, like a young education to you know even like high schools and then even being able to teach teachers because I think that that's the biggest thing right is like it, it, so one of my businesses my new business that i'm opening is a gym where where it's a personal training facility right so but one of our our issues is my business partner is a personal trainer the thing that we don't want to to fall victim to is having bad personal trainers and then that having a bad effect on the brand and the business so that when you spoke about uh training the teachers and then doing like crisis intervention that to me is like a I'm gonna slow down because that's I think that maybe that's in the future but I, I I how do you how do you how do you do curriculum for people who do curriculum that's what I'm trying to ask yeah because I that's that's like the how do you train the trainers what do you what is the what is that what is that process like how do you get people ready to get other people ready I, does that make sense what I'm asking? No, it makes it makes a lot of sense. And as you're talking, I have a lot of feelings going through me right now because um, I will be honest, it wasn't always easy. Um, the process had had its ebbs and flows to it. And it goes back to the, the notation I made a moment ago about being a Black woman leader. And um, I can speak to um, just because I will give you, I will give you a positive, but I do want to start by a problem statement. And that is what I just noted that being a black woman leader is not very easy, especially depending on what the, what the demographics look like at that level, at the leadership level, because to be quite frank, when you're in a system, there are certain um, systems in place that don't necessarily want to see change. So status quo is oftentimes what, what people are comfortable with. And I'm gonna be very honest, educators in particular have the tendency to be very complacent. They're very comfortable in the normality of the, you know, I check in at this time, I leave at this time. If you throw anything in this path as anything different than what I'm expecting, I am going to lose my, my feathers. Like it, it becomes that whole, um, whole thing. So if you're coming in and what I've learned through trial and error, cause I was blessed going into Jersey city. I'm be, I'm gonna be honest. I was blessed in some areas and there was a curse in others. Sometimes when you're really good at what you do, it intimidates the wrong people. Be honest. However, um, when you're doing, when you are good at what you're doing and you understand how each dynamic plays into the other, meaning how staff, how parents, how students all play into one another, they will feel a sense of, um, I don't wanna say safety, but security in your leadership. And so in going into Jersey City, I was blessed because I had teachers, I had parents and I had students that bought in to the difference, the difference that I came in there making. They were receptive to it. So when you have a receptive audience, it becomes easy. However, going into New Brunswick, I was not expecting the, uh, the, 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 I'm trying to look at the word, the, um, the obstacle that I faced as soon as I started 
at the school where Aquaeus is actually um, a teacher. It wasn't as much of the receptivity that I had anticipated when I went into Jersey City. So it, being young and, and having you know, a successful and, and favorable experience here and coming in, that threw me off, to be quite honest with you. However, it was a great learning experience because going from the elementary school into the high school, I understood that this is the culture here. It's a, a culture of fear. It's a culture of, I don't really feel comfortable being outside of my box. So how do you cater to that type of mindset? The way you do is by, um, especially when it comes to, I'm not even gonna say white teachers. This is just, I think this is a human thing. When you are interacting with individuals, they can't feel like you're evaluating them or judging them. You have, you have to go into an environment learning from them before you can start imparting to them. So what I did was, I wanted to hear from them before I did any evaluations, before I did any, before I even went into their classrooms. So I would sit with each of my teachers. I had 36 teachers that served under me. I had three departments. When I would sit with my teachers, I had them talk to me about their professional development plans because I didn't see them the year before. I'm new to this building. So they produced their professional development plans, meaning their goals for learning, what they reflected on that whole year, whoever was their uh, supervisor should have kind of seen that coming toward the end of the, their, the year. They should have had a sense of where they were. Um, I wasn't there that previous year. So I had to learn that from them at the beginning of the year. I sat with them, learned from them what their goals were, why they arrived at those goals. And so knowing where they're coming from, they understand that I see them. I know where you want to go. How am I going to support you? So now that I know and I go into your classroom and we have these particular goals in mind that you want to accomplish, when I go into your classroom, that's what I'm looking at so that I can give you feedback in that area. So when I would go into these classrooms, that would be how I would handle it. And it would be really a matter of a collaborative effort between myself and the teacher from beginning to end. We were able to produce student growth objectives based off of that same formula. It's a give and take throughout the whole year from beginning to end and therefore is non-judgmental and is not evaluative. It's more of a coaching role that you're having with your teachers as opposed to a, I, I am your, uh, I'm your supervisor. I, I expect this, I expect that. So I guess that's my way of answering how do you coach or how do you support the one that's supposed to be supporting someone else? No, that was that was phenomenal because I, you know, uh, it, it's it's a lot easier when there is, you know, uh, when they don't feel like they're being judged, um, and and to learn from the learners, learn from the educators, learn from where they are, so you can understand where it is that you want to take it. Um, if I could just hijack it and just jump in with another question, absolutely. So, um, uh, you you were teaching English for quite some time. Um, do you feel, now here's my thing, I understand, I love etymology, the study of just words, period, right? So I understand how difficult languages are. Um, to me, the reason in which, and we speak on here about, uh, like, like I, I'm very big on economic empowerment, and I'm very big on, you know, making sure financial literacy is a very big thing for me. Mm -hmm. And because 
I believe that it is actual financial literacy, right? Almost like another language that you have to understand with your finances. This is maybe a, a hypothetical question, but do you feel that there is a space in English education, right? Like in the English classes for financial literacy? I think I could give you one better. Okay. I don't know if I would necessarily make English financial literacy in English. I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't, but I think that there is a space for financial literacy unto itself. And I say that as, um, because I supervise the career technical education uh, teachers, which is um, like, I think my experience doing that has made me think of education in such a way that I do truly feel empowered. I think I always have, but I really do feel empowered by this motif. And the reason is because um, what, it, what it is, is, and not a lot of stu uh, schools are doing this, even affluent districts don't realize the benefit to it. I, I've had to share this with superintendents of affluent districts, the what is beneficial to college ready students and those students that may not want to go to college. What it is, is it allows for um, different professional pathways. Financial literacy is one of those. Business is, entrepreneurship is one of those pathways. What it allows is for students to, um, to, to pretty much come up with a major. Like I'm declaring this as my major in essence, um, going into high school. The idea is to start it as early as intermediate school. Don't wait until high school to have these programs rolling out so that students in the intermediate level are exposed, the middle school students are exposed to what the expectations can be and potentially get credit um, at the next level. So intermediate student that's already kind of thinking along these lines could receive some credit at the middle school level. Middle school students could receive College, um, high school credits, high school students can be dual enrolled in, uh, in programs that allow for them to receive college credits. How that works is if I'm coming in as, um, and I already had exposure in intermediate school and middle school, as I come into high school, I already know that I want to be um, an accountant. I, I know that's what I want to do. So with that said, um, in my freshman year, I do a integrated course where it gives me a sense of it's not going toward the it's not going toward the pathway just yet. It's giving me exposure to a variety of um, business related courses, financial literacy, quick little intro, quick little intro to accounting, so on and so forth. So then I'm like, okay, that was I, I enjoyed accounting more than I enjoyed whatever other within that little snippet. I can't wait to take that class. Now what happens is that student can take a number of courses that are aligned with that pathway. They know, just like in college, when you're picking your credits, you know, okay, I got to take this in order to graduate. I have, I could take this in place of this because I'm really interested in this and this falls into that same category. That's the same uh, objective at the high school level if you take a career technical education pathway. Like I said, a lot of schools are not doing it a few schools are starting to do it and maybe even a smaller few are in a position where they can say they're doing it successfully that is something that i think is a part of the future of education what will happen is these students will possibly have credit toward college 
And those students that don't want to go to college will possibly have certifications in areas that allow for them to go right into the professional field. So you kind of answered what was one of my other questions in that, which was the most valuable age to, to teach financial literacy. And so from, in summary, it almost sounds like it would be the best thing to be, would be to introduce it as early as possible and then future to allow it to be more elective driven to focus in everything, but earlier on just to, just to produce, um, just, just to introduce the language and the concept of it, period. Um, is we should do in, well, I guess the answer, the, the better answer would be both, but do you think that the effects would yield greater if we continued to produce on our own, or do you think we would have a greater um, foothold uh, or footprint more so if we integrated it with public education? That's a really, that's a tough question. Um, okay. And the reason is because I already, myself, uh, Aquaeus, um, the nonprofit, we, we're in a place where if we're trying to do it independently, um, it require whether you're trying to do it independently or with a school district, it's really going to require the same intensity of work, and that is um, capital, uh, having capital. Um, and I know now because of Corona and all of that, we're starting to see virtual um, that virtual um, classrooms are a possibility where it may minimize the need to do the cap have so much capital I mean, you're going to still need it because you're going to still need to pay salaries you're going to still but that is where you tap into and that goes to your your question Kent that's where you tap into school districts because now if you do it as a charter you know of course everything has to be laid out you put your proposal into the district the district would um if you have your petitions all that in and everything submitted properly the the school district isn't going to be excited about the fact that you're going to be a charter in their school district because you're gonna be taking down their enrollment, you're gonna be taking from their budget and all of that, but that's not necessarily your concern. However, you're not, you now have capital to pay salaries to ensure that students are getting the resources they need and so on and so forth. So I don't know really how to answer that question, but I can just impart that to you and maybe you can do with it what you will. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, amazing, by the way. Um, uh, <laughs> I'm 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 kind of thrown back by all the, from all the information, but um, this is kind of you kind of mentioned of uh, the future of teaching. I wanted to kind of ask, given the time that we're in right now, um, what does the future of teaching look like? Is does it look like? Um, because at one point I I went to Rutgers, so I graduated from Rutgers. Um, and I, I remember my freshman year, I was taking chemistry, and that class was every bit of 300 people. So, I mean, I know in a higher, in a higher ed, um, I can see it going to, I can see the resources being able to make like virtual, make more virtual meetings. Um, but for 
high school and like lower grades, um, what does it look like? Is it more likely to that it's got to be done at home? And like, I feel like at that point, parents got to be in, more involved to like kind of like make sure that that's happening. Or is it going? Or does it look like it's just going to stick to being like a public school and the public school had to change type of? Um, so that's my that's my first question um, that I kind of I'm, I'm interested. So you want to know if um, if the virtual world of education is going to become more of the dominant method for instruction versus the the traditional be in the classroom motif yes yes like um, what what's it, what does that look like as of right now as somebody that's kind of essentially on the front lines yes um i love the question and i think and and i can speak more so being a board member i'm a board member for franklin public schools and i have a really uh close connection with the superintendent and the assistant superintendents and i get to ask these kind of questions to them and we, Franklin, I will say, is generally ahead of the game when you look at a lot of districts. I, I do a lot of data. I look at a lot of data. I actually have some that I wanted to talk to you guys about. I'm not sure if we're going to get into it. But when I look at, um, you know, how we fare in, in relation to a lot of districts, we are very much ahead of the, of the gamut. And um, when I asked the superintendent this question, he says that, of course, um, Oh, I'm sorry, my light just went out. Let me just fix that. Give me one second, guys. No problem. Okay. All right, sorry, guys. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he, he shared that, um, that they're going to be rolling out what is going to be like a A, B type of schedule um, where students that um, students that are at the high school level, if they have siblings at the lower level, they're going to work it out so that the older students are able to be home on the same schedule as their younger siblings to support instruction while the parents, of course, can't be home. But of course, not every every young sibling has an older sibling. So that is kind of where there's still kind of a question mark, I'm be honest with you. Um, it'll work better for that dynamic. However, the demographics in Franklin are very different from one end to the other. You have you know, students and families that are socioeconomically disadvantaged, and then you have very affluent, and you have a, a strong middle class in Franklin. So those strong middle class and affluent aren't going to have an issue because generally these parents work from home. <laughs> you know, they can do that. They can, they can work that out. Um, whereas those at the lower end are generally our first responders. They're, they're the ones that are at the front line. And I think what's going to happen is, is the, uh, the, I think organizations like the word on the move and other nonprofit organizations and other entities are going to have to come up with creative ways. Edu the educational institutions are gonna have to be receptive and, and open to the supports that other organizations will provide during these times. I don't think this is the end of, um, of this virtual situation. I think that what we're gonna end up doing is finding creative ways to use it more often. And I think what's happening now is really just 
a simulation. I mean, it's real. This is stuff that's happening. But I think we're in a, the prototype phase. We're really trying to figure out how we can do it because of what I said, those students that aren't in disadvantageous positions and, um, you know, things like that is going to be the impact that, or the, it's going to impact the fluidity of what we want to do with virtual um, instruction. So I don't know if that answers it, but that's my, that's my take. That's my thoughts on it. No, you, you, um, I, I essentially wanted to, that sounded like something that's like essentially in a, a testing, a testing, like this is what we're, we're working on. There's obviously every school is probably has to have some type of plan to do something similar. And um, I think the, the case that you said that it's a pretty, like you have good metrics on, um, you know, who your, who your, who your target is. Um, I think is really relevant. I was just curious because I mean, we're like, we're talking about, um, I think there was a perfect, like there needs to be other organizations that, assist in the process because asking like like you said these people work at home like but what about the people who don't work at home who are essential workers who is I mean obviously mostly us uh so those, like those those like I was just kind of curious over what those questions are and that that's interesting um so I guess I kind of just jump into my my second thought which was um because we were talking about teaching independently and um Kent was talking about financial literacy is there anything else that you think um, younger people could get ahead of time um, that can kind of be nurtured, like for either, a, let's say, a family or a group of individuals that are taking responsibility in um, teaching a child independently? Um, what are other things that they, they can be receiving earlier? Yeah, um, I, I, I love that question. There's two things that come to mind. Um, my sister and her husband are educators, and, um, you know, they opted to have my niece, who's 11, go to the charter school for intermediate school instead of, you know, the middle, she lives in town. And I understand why she did that. It's, it's a unique situation, as we all know, at that age. And um, you want to make sure your kids got it right and are solid. And, I, and she was just talking to me because they were deciding whether or not at one point they're going to keep Sinai in the, um, the charter school because it's very rigorous. She's getting all A's. She's killing it. But it, she's an athlete, too. So it's like, ah, uh, they don't have athletic programs. Uh. But my sister just shared yesterday that she, and she already does work with her, her kids. She has set hours that she does with them about four days a week or three days a week. But the school, the charter school gave her the option to either have my niece go to the school and receive enrichment um, or they would have a teacher assigned virtually to do the work with, with, yeah, yeah. And I was like, mm. <laughs> she was like, they're doing the work. Like, this is not even summer school. This is literally like, they don't, these kids don't need summer school in this school. This is really just, we're giving you additional support. So when you come back, you come back ready. And so, um, so she's keeping my niece there, of course, now. And, um, and so I think that's the answer to the first, the first answer where you can always use these platforms now to and continue to support young people. You can have a teacher right in your face in your home. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And if you don't have the internet um, capacity, I'm sure Aquaeus can share in New Brunswick, the district provides the internet they just turn on a switch to ensure that those 
young people have access to internet and a device. So there's ways to, to do that, um, even for those who need it. Um, the second part, I guess the second way I would answer that um, is that uh, I almost for, I'm almost forgetting what I was going to say for the second part. Um, I'll just leave it there because I can't think of what my second part was, but I had something. If I can remember it, I'll bring it back up. <laughs> Q, did you wanna did you wanna ask any questions? I did. I actually had um two questions for you. You mentioned early in your introduction about um a warmth approach to teaching. Um I was curious if you were able to, you know, during that time period see a significant reaction to black youth that that took and what benefits do you think that can be applied moving forward? Like, I know that's a tool I'm sure that can, um, if applied correctly and through a system can kind of be a more enticing tool to use to actually get kids to really enjoy the process. And so um, I just wanted to see your thoughts on what you were able to capture when you were applying such warmth to your teaching. You know, I think, I think it can be learned to some degree. Um, and that was kind of what I wanted us to, to think of, of how we black educators and white educators, um, how we have a sense of oppression in our, in our instruction and whether we realize it or not, um, and whether or not it's a solely a black thing, I mean, a solely a white thing or are black teachers doing it as well. And so I kind of wanted to, to take us there at, at some point, but I can say that I think it has to be natural to you to some degree too. How do you interact with your own children? That I, and I, I'm, a, I'm almost afraid to use that as the sample too, because um, a text that uh, one of our colleagues shared, the silence dialogue, I was reading that by um, Lisa Delpit. It talks a lot about how if we teach our kids the way that we teach that we are with our own children, depending on our culture, may have negative impacts on our students. So the the article talks about how you know white white people when they interact with their children generally pose questions, but those questions are actual commands. So did you take a shower yet? Might be a question you ask your kid if you're white and the kid knows that it's not just, I'm gonna answer, no I didn't, and then just keep sitting there and playing his, his um, PS3. The, the, the kid knows that the parent is telling him to take a shower. This is what the article's saying, right? However, if you may ask that same question to a black kid, black kid's gonna take that as a Q and A. No, I didn't, and continue not being defiant, just not realizing that's what you're doing. Because his mother tells him, get up, get in the get in bath and wash. That's just that's just how it's command driven. So I'm saying that and I'm referencing that particular article because I see how a lot of our children end up with behavioral issues or um, or these infractions against them. Because if you look at the data, and that was what I was gonna talk about as well, you'll see that even in predominantly black schools, there is still predominantly white female teachers. 
So if that's the case and they're thinking they're taking the same approach and they always say, oh, I treat my, my kids in my classroom like I treat my own kids. Yeah, you do. And you're not getting the results because that's not what black kids are used to. So if you want your kid to do something, tell them, give them a command, he's going to do it. And so it, I think what, so my, I guess the way to answer that question is, um, it's really about mindfulness. We have to teach our teachers how to be mindful of the culture of the students that is in front of them. And based off of their understanding of the children that are sitting in front of them, they can then have a sense of how to instruct them and that it's not one size fits all. It is differentiated according to what you know about your children. That is Zach, like that's brilliant. That was literally the information <laughs> I needed from you because I mean, that's the biggest part I personally took from that when you even said it was the um, idea of what warmth is compared to a white kid versus a black kid or, you know, just the different, you know, upbringings, there's a level of difference even, even in that definition. So um, that was a really good explanation. I like that. Um, my last question really is kind of like meant to be the, uh, you know, the ender for this, but it's really something I just want to kind of pose now. It's um, since you have played a spectrum of positions throughout your career within the school system, where do you see a lack of our presence, us being people of color, within the system that we need to be filling and kind of the positions, not just teachers, because yes, we do need more black teachers, but the kind of the positions that actually manipulate the choices within the system, mm -hmm. they are going to benefit our people specifically. That's a really, really good question. Um, I can, I can, I'm visual, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna share it like this. Um, I, I've, I've looked at data of affluent districts or, or predominantly white districts. And I see that there's something very uh, obvious when you look at it. You'll see that, let's say 95% of the students are, no, let's, let's back that up. 80% of the students are white. 0.7% of the teachers are black, right? 97% of the teachers are white in those districts. Now I said 95% of the students are white, right? So now I'm, now I'm, excuse me, 80% of the students are white. About 13% of that are black kids. So think about that. If you have a school of a, of a thousand kids, you already kind of know, or let's make it easier, a hundred kids. That means 90, that means 80 of those kids are white and 13 of those kids are black. So if you're walking in the hallway, in the small little hallway with these hundred kids, you're going to see more white kids. You're almost not even gonna notice the black kids when you're in there. And if you do, you're like, oh, there's a black kid. And you keep in, you kind of like keep them. If you look at the society that we live in, there's 13% of us that are black in the society. So when you look at how that looks in a smaller, isolated, contained 100 group of students, you get a better sense as to how white people view 
us in society. Whenever they do have exposure to us, it's through the news, it's through the media, it's by driving by an underprivileged community, and it's very limited. So I'm saying that because all of what's happening perpetuates the oppression of Black people. The, the lack of exposure to Black people is, and, and, the, and the exposure they get to Black people that is negative is doing us a disservice. So it is important for us to do what you guys are saying, which is you're starting at the grassroots level. You're identifying the issues and you're looking at it in terms of where are the solutions. The solutions is we need to have more Black educators applying to non-Black schools because there are Black representation in those schools as well. And, they're and what's happening is they're in the minority and they're in a, at a loss. And what happens is white people can perpetuate the idea that there's no Black applicants. We're just not getting them. That's why we have 97% of our staff is white and that's why 80% of our students are white. There are not enough Black people applying for these jobs. What's gonna happen is Black parents are gonna be drawn to the community when they see Black people going into these jobs. What's happening is there's a level of um, oppression that's happening. There's a level of have and have not happening because we're not used, taking the advantage of, of the demographics as they are now. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's, that's my thought process for that. Oh, that makes perfect sense. I can see that being a necessary dilemma. I mean, well, current dilemma. Um, and I think that our goal is to, you know, grow to the point of um, getting more people to take initiative to fill in those positions and take lead to, you know, filing out those applications of positions that aren't necessarily looking like us, but we do need to tar partake in so we can do necessary difference. Because, um, yeah, we're dealing with some, some issues. And we have to change the, the mindset of yes. the people that are in these positions of what, I, what we're going to call power. Um, they have to see um, that we're not just in it from an outside in, but we're in it and out as well. We have to take all forms. We have to be in urban education because, as I mentioned before, most of the teachers are, and, and it's not because we're not trying to get jobs. We're, we're trying to get jobs and we have them. It's just not enough educators to saturate. Like you, we need more educators, more black educators. But what's happening is, and I read, a, read something while a long time ago when I was first doing my dissertation, I don't even remember what it was, but I, what stood out to me is that there is, the, and for some decades, it's been black people tend not to go to school for education because when we do go to college, it's because we're looking to, um, to make money. And education is not the money-making profession. So we're like, eh, I ain't gonna do that, but I'm gonna do, I'm gonna, you know, maybe be an accountant. Maybe I'm gonna try to, you know, be an English major so I can major in law later and maybe take some civics classes and criminal justice classes and so on and so forth. So we look in that direction so we can make money, but we don't realize that it's oversaturating in these other areas and not enough in, um, in education. 
can I just jump in? Um, because I was, my question, right, was actually going to be, and this is again possibly another hypothetical, because I spent a lot of time thinking about things like, and, and just kind of which ways that I would think if I had a bazillion dollars, how I would fix something. Um, and so one of my um, thought processes was that I believe that there should be a, a, a uniformity in the pay that teachers get across the country. Um, so that way it extends the desire pool to, 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 to dive in because there's not such an uncertainty because here's the thing, I have no idea how much a teacher makes in Franklin versus how much I can assume that, you know, if you are in uh, a very nice town, a very high tax, East Brunswick with, you know, high taxes that as a teacher, um, you are probably making more, but my, I guess, suggestion or question is, do you, do you feel as though that is in any way, shape, or form a solution to um, expanding our desire to jump into this pool of educators? Because I myself went to college with a, a, a number of individuals who I know are very intelligent um, African-American men, and they all had a desire to uh, make a change and make a difference and still make a living. And so 24 out of the 40 men that I was very close with have all become law enforcement officers in some way, shape, or form, because that is their only answer to being able to both make a change and to make a living. And to me, I, I've, I've always felt the majority of them could have done better at making the change by trying to make an influence, because we did such a good job in college of reaching out and speaking to younger individuals that if 24 of them had all become educators, I can, I can just assume that they would have easily influenced 100 more minds. And out of those 100 more minds, 24 more of them would have become educators to help to continue um, the, 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 the growth of, of us in that field. Because I feel as though it is something that is missed. I feel like, you know, as African-American men, the only people that we really have to look to when it comes to education is the teacher that uh, we can relate to the most. And I feel like, you know, as much as we can relate to an African-American woman, it's just a difference when if I was a, a, a teen male with a, a, a teacher who was helping influence my mind. And so that's just where I feel like there's a, 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 a bigger ability there but yeah. do you feel as though financial uniformity would help solve that in any way shape or form um i don't know if i would say uniformity so much as um just kind of taking the same approach to any institution when it comes to even any even a corporation when things are operated with state and even with law enforcement you have these um ceilings you know, whereas in corp corporate world, there these ceilings don't really, these financial ceilings don't exist. You know, I think, you know, I think it's going to continue this way because of what you noted, the taxes and people, people put into the money and you get state grants and they're going to control the money. And, and they, they claim they don't have any, but it's really the system, you know, because we're a part of the system, the system is controlling how things operate. And so corporations, they have stocks, they have bonds, they have these, these other ways to really um, bring in a pool, an onslaught of money that 
education, educational systems just don't have. So I'm going to be honest. I don't see any changing in any change that's coming anytime soon. Um, this is what it is. I think you just have to be the kind of person going into education, knowing that you, you have to, you so, got, it has to be a, a desire for you. So with the, with the, with the structure that I had um, widely proposed, it was a, it was something like what you mentioned where, yeah. you know, it is, it is uh, closely correlated to a S&P 500 corporation in which it is results driven, where I feel as though teachers should be able to, you know, if you are a teacher in America, period, you should come into this thing making, and my suggestion was about 100,000. Um, it should just be 100,000 flat regardless just to get into education, period. And depending on uh, the acceleration of your students is how you decide whether or not you then get risen in pay or lowered in pay but it is strictly based on your performance and i feel like everybody should come in with a base and if you know 60 percent of your class uh passed then guess what you only get 60 percent of the potential raise that you could have gotten or i would say that there's like a pool in which like yo you, you know it's a hundred thousand um total but you have to have 80 percent of your class pass in order to get the full hundred if it's not then it's reduced by a certain amount so th that was the the idea of uniformity but 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 correlated to a performance-based system in which it is based on the success of the the, the people and the way in which we learn because here's the thing to me is like if i have a class of 50 students and i know that i have to get so many of them to be proficient in this one thing and there's a group of them that is not because it is so closely tied to my financial stability and ability to go on vacation and buy a boat and whatnot, I, those, that group of people is going to be at my house on Saturday because we're going to make <laughs> sure that y'all get to where y'all need to get to because I'm trying to get what I want to get. And I just, I just always felt like there was a better way in which we could tie into a personal performance, right, in your lifestyle in which it is driven based on the results in which your students perform. Does that in any way, shape, or form sound like something that I should be um, screaming and thinking about more because to me it sounds like it's something that does make sense but then it also sounds like it's a little too it's easier said than done well if you think of how states and legislation and you know all of that operates you will know that that's not possible under that umbrella it, it, it's just not they you know um, but if you were to kind of take take education out of its current place which is under the system and make it more like a corporation that's that you know you would need a great deal of support from a corporation really to to do that so it's almost like a charter but not connected to a school district because charters are still connected to that system so it would be like a charter, but more so connected to a corporation if you want to have that type of that type of um, paradigm. To me, it would be the same thing, the same way in which we do sports and sports endowments for colleges. I would mirror it just off that, where it's like, if you guys aren't performing, you guys don't meet a certain bracket in which you guys can't, you know, you're not D3 if you're not performing a certain way. And therefore, the funding is different. Yeah. Um, and and that would that would be the the closest way because I'm like well, they already do that in, in education like we we 
seeing where the big money goes to the, the schools that don't necessarily have the best education but have the biggest sports programs because it's based on entertainment. If we kind of closely mirror that, and I, I think we should definitely start with colleges, period, right? Because Brown University did a, a phenomenal thing where they, they got rid of majors. So it's like if you want to focus, it's more of a concentration and allows you to, to, to progress um, based on the courses that you've completed and to, to gear your learning in the way in which you want. And I think that that's a phenomenally new system that they've adopted, but I also feel as though that there's space to adopt some of their systems into our education systems. But I definitely do understand the rigors and the complications yeah. that, that we face. Yeah, and these are, these are, they're acting as corporations, everything mm -hmm. you just noted. Um, that's not the current state. So it requires capital. Like you have to have endless ends to, to, to operate like that's that. A billion dollars I was talking about. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that's not the way they, they claim um, our system, our educational system mm -hmm. is under. We're, we're, we're looking at local taxes. We're looking at, you know, state grants and Title I schools and, and all mm -hmm. these things that, minim that, that limit the capital. And, and that's why you're seeing it as it is. Yeah, I, think I love the idea, though. <laughs> I, I, I honestly think this leads us to where we need to go next, because the whole purpose of this platform is to build our own. We are literally in the middle of just it's our time now to be imaginative, right? we are in the perfect opportunity to think of ideas like this that we can implement. I'm sure if we had, you know, Bezos on the line right now, he has the capital. There are people who have the capital, uh, Elon Musk, right, who are super imaginative. So let's not limit ourselves right here. Let's continue this conversation. And this is what justice is about. Literally, as Ken's speaking, I'm like, yes, like me as a teacher in the classroom, I'm all about performance. Why not instill more per performance metrics, just like sports, just like the NBA, NFL? Like, why can't education be a sport? Why can't education be entertaining? It can. It's just a matter of making it that way, right? So I'm thinking of radical ideas. Michelle, you dropped a lot of data. And I'm thinking like, yo, if... Most of our schools are predominantly, predominantly driven and led by white people. Where are the black people at? Okay, prison industrial complex, school to prison pipeline, blacks, Latinos in prison. Why not train those who are incarcerated to teach our children, mentor our children, tell them, yo, this is where I messed up. This is what you do not need to do. I've been through it from experience. Mm. Why not create those programs? I'm like, hmm, now's the time to really switch things up. Like literally, I'm just looking at the numbers, thinking about the data, like, let's go into the prisons now. That's human capital, our human capital. Literally just sitting, they wanna do something to stay up off the street. Like let's train them, be in the schools, keep them off the streets, our students benefit from it. They're like, I don't want to go to prison. You know, I don't want to go back to prison. Those who are coming out teaching. And it's like, yo, what can we do with that? 
So that's an idea that just came to mind. Now's the time to be radical. Now- I love it. But, and I was getting really, I'm my, I was getting goosebumps and everything. But then I thought about what loopholes. I mean, politically, yes. I could literally sit down and, and know people are going to shut me down. And then they I'll just. Are. And, and I'm going to tell you, right? legally, they are. Yes. Because you, you have to get fingerprinted and you could not have committed um, certain crimes Absolutely. in order to be an educator. So there is a loophole to that as well, where if depending on your crime, it doesn't fall in that category. Yeah. However, if you had, a, you know, a serious, I don't, I don't know the criminal terminology, but there, the, the, the information is there in your certification process, depending on what kind of crime it is, you can't teach. Yeah, there has to be a bar, but even when we think about it somewhere I read where a lot of us who go to prison is for like subpar crimes, like distribution of marijuana, stuff like that. You know, it's not really serious, heinous crimes, even in terms of like sexual assault, you know? Um, I'm not showing the stacks on the stats, but I would think that not that many black people go to jail for like, you know, sex crimes and that kind of, that level of stuff, right? I, I kind of so while y'all are talking, I'm getting I'm getting my my brain is starting to turn. But I feel like is could there possibly um because you said there's a loophole could there be something like what if it was a third party system that managed the you know the I guess the employment of certain teachers because I'm th- like I'm more so thinking like like you said like things are going vi- virtual like there there could be a virtual conversation where I'm not, I don't like, as a parent, I'm not concerned for your safety because what's the worst that can happen? Like uh, through, through a conversation. I mean, you can probably get crazy, but it's, if it's a control system where, okay, you know, you develop a relationship with this person who is minor drug offense or something like end up, end up getting way too money or too much money in some, some other places say like, yeah, and like, I know how to do that. That's not the way, like, you know I mean, in a men- more mentorship, maybe, um, cause I maybe directly teaching in a, in a high school facility might be a stretch for, for certain things. But if you could kind of set up the, as a, as a third party organization, set up the space where, you know, people feel comfortable and with the, with the, with whoever's coming in with the, the children or people from the community being around and like they're like does that sound like something like kind of a, to to counteract what whatever could stop that interaction in that system possibly um let me let me just say this first um when i think of how this could backfire i think immediately of um situations that are starting to happen more and more often if you have someone that was formerly incarcerated teaching and he has become, gets romantically involved with one of the students, let's say, that, I don't even know what the repercussions for that entity that allow that to happen. I don't even, I couldn't even imagine what that looked like because it wasn't as if we didn't do a background check and find that this person was formerly incarcerated. So imagine the headlines to that. So, um, and I almost feel the same way when it comes to it being a third party scenario. I know they did, they used to do the scared straight thing. So it may, it may fall into that, whatever that is, that it could potentially go in that realm. Mm-hmm. But as far as having them um, be teachers of students, we're really 
opening our children up to a level of vulnerability that we're responsible for if we were to do that. And that's, that you said scary street. That's exactly what I was thinking about as far as like, well, it's, it's been done with people in prison. So why couldn't that, but it, it was, you know, made for TV kind of aspect to it. Um, bold environment. I, yeah, I still think um, there's at least, at least at the very least, it could be some, I believe there could be something where you, if kind of along the lines of scare straight, but it's not scared, like no, not a fear, it's more of a conversation type based, um, like mentorship, kind of like, yeah, don't end up where I was, uh, like this is, this is what I'm into now, um, I'm like, I'm, I'm into coding and everything, so I know there's a big opportunity for people who are in prison to sit down and learn code, and when you come out, you know, I mean, the the idea is like, you're not like, I'm so I work from home now. So like when you're in pro programming and when you're IT, it's you're not like a risk to, to other people if you're working from home. If you're that good at what you're doing, people will pay you to stay at home and code. So it's kind of like, it's, it's, a, it's a potential that I see for any of us, not alone just people who are in prison, but like definitely people who, who you know, can't, who can't do as much as they used to. Like it's a very easy way to make money. So like, I know that in that lane, there's, there's, there's a conversation to be had with uh, some people. But, you know, um, I think for me, I, I, and this is just my, my stance. I, I got excited to be honest with you, because I thought I was like, this is, this is, that is a great idea. But then I think when I, when you really let that settle in and you start really allowing yourself to see how that could potentially be more harmful than good, I think of the importance of affirmations. You want to affirm young people. And I think exposing them, not necessarily, um, they should know what the consequences are to adverse behaviors, but we shouldn't, I don't know if, if affirming them and then having people that are at the worst doing, like teaching them, go hand in hand. Uh, I think that, um, give you an example. A lot, there, you, you, it's, uh, it's obvious that a lot of black um, families tend to be raised um, in urban, socioeconomically disadvantaged neighborhoods by a single black woman. You know, you can, you can look at the data, you'll see that. Um, so that tells me that, you know, there's this this notion that black women are raising their children alone. So if we're, if that is the case, um, it's up to us to, to find ways where they're getting support from positive black males because they're not getting it in the home environment per se. I say that to say, I did an interview of a guy that is a black male that has raised his children. And for me, instead of us highlighting the fact that there's a deficiency of black men raising their, um, their children, let's highlight the ones that are. Because what that does is it affirms the idea that this exists. This is not, it's not I mean, you may not see it for whatever reason, but this is out there. I rather affirm our people as opposed to expose the areas that we need work in. So when it comes to behavior management and staying on track and developing our children, we have to affirm them. 
And so when it comes to, you know, the prison, to the school of prison pipeline, instead of scaring them by showing them the, the pipeline, let's show them the possibility. So that's kind of where I am. Let's show them the possibility. This is what you can have. This is what you can be. We, they, show, they see all that all, already. They don't need to see that no more. They need affirmations. And so um, for me, I think it's really a matter of putting, putting the right people in place. And I spoke with Aquaeus some months ago about the right people to me are not always educators. Oftentimes, there are people that are advocates in their community that want the best for their people, and they need to be the ones that we certify and get in the classroom. Not incarcerated people, not people that just want to check, people that really love their community, that want to see the best for their children, and they want to see the best for their real estate, they want to see the best for their banking systems, as you guys have been talking about, they want to see the best for their um, supermarkets and farms, and they want Black-owned stuff. Those are the kind of people that need to be in the classroom. That, that's, that's my take. They need to be in the classroom. So putting the right people in the right positions to make the right decisions, that's been a theme since I think May for me, literally. Um, so yeah, I definitely agree. And QI, I saw you clapping up there. Anything <laughs> you want to say? No, I just totally agree. That's all. That's just me applauding that, um, that theory. That, that mean, everything she spoke on right there just hits to a great point. So that's all. Awesome. Awesome. So I think we're coming to a close now. Again, the, the, the mission of this syndicate collective is to ensure change, equity, justice, and ownership within our communities through education and economic empowerment. Before we close out, is there anything you would like to share or, or is, is there anything anyone else would like to share in regards to what we can be doing to build our own, essentially? I just want to add to what Aquas is saying. Can you please give us a little drop for your book also? Um, <laughs> so we didn't get a chance to talk to talk about it, but um, hopefully, I, I mean, I, I definitely will cop one and we can get a chance to run through it and we could probably have a whole nother discussion on, on this alone. And just so and just so that we could take this to um, uh, to help influence as many people as possible in the future, can you also talk about why you you wrote the book and then the process that you took? Because I feel like there's a lot of people who have the ability to um, do what you've done and don't really know that there's a process. And just so if you could just speak to that as well, please. Yeah, that's a good point you make. Um, there's this, this lady that before I even decided to write the book, um, when I was in the process of doing my dissertation, she was a principal and um, her, her building, I'll, I'll briefly say this. My, my dissertation was on the underprivileged, under, it was a case study on an underprivileged, underserved New Jersey uh, school that was run by the state and, they, and their turnaround process. And it took that school six years to come out of status. And um, what was so beautiful about that to me is the fact that usually schools that come out of status, I don't really necessarily always believe that they did the work. <laughs> and um, in addition to that, oftentimes those, those schools that come out of status, um, they don't have the same principle for those time, the years that they were in status. 
So that okay. means- What do you mean by status? If, if you can clarify okay. what that means for everyone, because not everyone may know what that means. So status means that you were underperforming in a particular area. Um, it could be a subgroup that's really um, at a certain level. Like there's these, there's these, these levels, like these tiers to underperformance. And depending on what tier you fall in, you will become either a focus school, which is, you know, we, you know we're, we're in a 30% bracket as opposed to the 10% worse schools. The ones that are at the 10% of the worst in that particular area, those are priority schools. And, um, and so each way the state will take over according to the data and they have what they, they, they have you put together a school improvement panel. And that team is designed to put things in place to ensure the progress of those students in that area and have it be sustainable. And so um, the school that I was doing my research was a priority school. And it, because of it, one of their subgroups was underperforming. I can't remember. I think it might have been in math or something like that. And so what they, what they did was they put together um, a plan for, for those six years that was very uh, um, specific, it was measurable, and it held everyone accountable to the work. And as a result, the school was successful in coming out of status. And so when I went in to do my research to, to interview the leadership team and the principal last, they didn't know my questions, but they each answered almost the same way. They had variations to how they answered it, but they answered it almost the same way. So that told me that there was a cascading message that each stakeholder had a level of buy-in. They didn't know my questions. So I was like, this is some, and the information they were sharing with me was powerful. I was like, this is some good leadership practice going on in this building. And so when I finally interviewed her, I was saying to myself, this lady is sharp. Uh, she needs to, first off, I don't know why she doesn't have her doctorate. Secondly, I don't know why she's not the superintendent. And third, I don't know why she doesn't have a book because she kept referencing all these different texts. And she gave me like 10 books when I left. Like she was like, here, I want you to have this. This is on this. this is... I was like, this woman is amazing. So I kept her number. I keep in contact with her. And I just spoke with her the other day. And I was just saying to her, she, she was saying to me, because she knows about my book, she got my book and everything. And she said that she was wanting to learn from me how to, to go about writing. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm trying to learn from you. I might have my doctorate, but that ain't, that ain't got nothing to do with the level of learning I can get from you. <laughs> and so I was saying to her, you know, I definitely will help to hold you accountable to the writing because you have a whole bunch of, of knowledge and experience inside of you. You just need to give yourself some time to manage that. And so for me, I was fortunate because I'm no longer working in a school system where I have time to devote to my personal um, desires and needs. So I was able to put that at the forefront of my, um, of, of my priorities. And the reason why I wrote that book was the reason why I'm no longer in a public system right now. I'm no longer there because of, you know, my experience with oppression at the district level. 
And so it became my inspiration and it was cathartic for me. I had to release. I was angry. I was sad. I was frustrated. And so it allowed for me being a writer, being someone that, that loves creative, uh, just being creative, it allowed for me to, to really release and come to a place of peace because I was able to, I know the first draft was a mess. <laughs> the, the first draft, it was organized, but it was an organized mess because it was really just me needing to pour, pour it out. But then I found myself for most of the time, I had my, my, my writing was done months before I was even done with it. And the reason is because I had to go back and I had to, you know, do editing and modifications and take less of my feelings out and put more of an experience in so that people outside of myself can feel it and feel like they can relate to the characters. If not relate, they can at least empathize with the, with the characters and feel like they have a stake in the solution, whether you're white, whether you're a male, whether you're a black woman, you should feel like you want to do something about this, these nuances of psychological oppression that happen for black people, and in this case, black women. Appreciate that. Might drop a flex bomb. <laughs> <laughs> Um, before you go, what we also want to do with this uh, platform we have is to kind of figure out what necessities you as in the position of, you know, as an Arthur now and other, you know, endeavors that you might have going on, what it is that we can support. Um, I know we already spoke on our own once we found out you had the book, like, oh, we're all going to buy that. But <laughs> is there anything that you're shooting for future wise that you could use specifically a community of people behind you to make it come to life? I, I love that. And I, I really do appreciate that. So I have um, been interviewing um, a great deal. <laughs> and my, my prayer is that let, let God's will be done. I, I want to be in a place that is going to honor my creativity, but, but beyond myself, because it's not about me. I, I only bring my creativity up because that's a gift from God. And so the creativity is the vehicle, the vision is the vehicle which drives the purpose. And so I wanna be somewhere that's going to appreciate that in a way where it shows up and you'll see it in the students. You'll see that in the parents, you'll see that in a community, you'll see that in the students and, and allow the time to incubate and to, 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 to allow for sustainability to happen. That's my prayer for myself, and it's all through God's will. But in that process, I have been going through my own personal reflections about the things that I need to improve uh, upon as, a, as an individual so that I can be the best me. And that's, that also ties into my, my work. That also ties into my friendships and so on. So in this journey of self self-reflection and perspective, I've realized the very importance of making networks like you guys, because I know that when it's my time, when God blesses me with the opportunity to impart his gift to those that I service, that I will have all of the right people 
to pull from for services outside of the school district. Because like I said, I believe wholeheartedly that advocacy and education need to go hand in hand. That's awesome. In, any other questions? Does anyone have any, any other questions? So right now, I want to drop the links for White Shade. Michelle, do you prefer me to drop the uh, Book Baby link or Amazon link? What, what's, what's best? Um, you know what? It's, it's up to you guys how you want to order. I prefer Book Baby, um, I, although I did have an issue with it. Um, I have a group of my sorors that are going to be um, doing it as a book club. And what happened is, I think it wasn't Book Baby. It was actually their post office. So if you're having any delays, it's not Book Baby. Book Baby is quick. That's why I go that way. So if you're going to order, order through Book Baby, they print on the spot. They'll print one, one copy at a time. You don't have to wait for 10 people or 100 people to order. As soon as you make the order, they're printing it and they're sending it right off. If there are any delays, let me know. It's likely your post office. But um, I would go that route. You could also put them to, I have a website just for the book. Um, it's a short and sweet website. I need to do a little bit more to it just to give it a little more energy, but it is, um, what is it? White shade. It's, it's white shade. What is it? <laughs> white shade, the book.com. <laughs> so if you go to white shade, the book.com, uh, you can also order through there too. Got it. So I'll drop, I'll drop both links. Okay. I gotta throw it out there that I just caught on to white shade. Uh, I think that I think that's kind of catchy. That's that's pretty catchy. So definitely remember that website though for, for for future for future references. Definitely remember it. So with with that being said, I believe that's that covers everything. It was a pleasure having you this afternoon. Having you join us. Uh, if no one else has any questions or anything else they would like to share. I'm sure we will. I appreciate the knowledge. I definitely, we definitely think we all appreciate the gems. Um, and, I, and I look forward to everything else that you have to give and to offer and everything else that we can all learn from uh, downloading everything that you've so graciously put into White Shade. Um, I think that we are all going to enjoy that and probably be able to come back here and uh and reconvene a little bit wiser just not just because of this conversation but also because of the book that you have um and i feel like this is going to be a phenomenal inspirational opportunity to some very prominent and who are looking for uh continuous modes of inspiration um, so I thank you, I, and I, I graciously appreciate you for giving us your time and the wisdom. Thank you. I thank you. Also, I'll make sure to, to share the link, your IG link, because we, uh, we, we got to build that up for you, right, Michelle? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you got jokes a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> Not no doubt. Yeah, we supporting in any means. So if it's, even if it's a follow, we support. It's it's gonna come. Don't even worry about it. Keep keep building it. Keep building it. Thank you. Come. Thank you. <laughs> there we go.
we we got you covered. I love you guys. I really do appreciate your time and your questions have been amazing. Um, it allowed for me to think of things that I, I hadn't considered. And I love that because it, it now is something in my pocket that I can now, you know, pull out and grapple with a little bit. So I, I, I appreciate it. I love these kind of conversations. You guys are wise beyond measure and, um, I look forward. Don't make that face. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not you. My computer's doing something weird. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but I, I, I look forward to spending time with you guys soon.